0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. And today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite movies of all time, Quentin Tarantino's 2009 War Epic and Glorious Bastards, which is my favorite Quentin Tarantino film. And that's saying a lot because I like a lot of Tarantino's movies. However, I think this was the movie that ushered in what I consider to be his renaissance era thus far as a filmmaker. His last several have been my favorites of the films that he's made. And this one still stands on top of the pile. So we're going to break down what I love about the movie when I first saw it, and we have a very special conversation with somebody who I'm very lucky to call a friend, and a fellow movie trivia schmodown singles champion, Sam Levine, who appears as Hirschberg, one of the inglorious bastards. We will talk to him about the experience of making the movie, what it's like to be in a movie that is nominated for Best Picture and premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, so much that went on with this film, but first, let's talk about the movie itself. Like most of his work, Tarantino took at least partial inspiration from the works of an Italian film director, Enzo G. Castellari, who in 1978 made a film called The Inglorious Bastards. Now, it shares almost nothing in common with the Tarantino film, Inglorious Bastards. But this tapestry of old films has just seeped into Quentin Tarantino's DNA. I, just about every frame that he puts out there is inspired in some way or another by a filmmaker from a certain era, and *Inglorious Bastards* is no different. *Inglorious Bastards* was shot in 2008, it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2009, and it quickly became Quentin Tarantino's biggest financial hit of his career. And not for nothing, it also inspired one of my favorite movie trivia showdown moments of all time. In *Inglorious Bastards, what is the nickname of Eli Ross' character? JTE uh, The Jew Bear. Yeah, no. no. Definitely not. No. Nope, Definitely nope. not. And nope. Janine? I bet the Bear Jew. That's correct. And <laughs> the Bear Jew. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Bongiorno, the Bear Jew. <laughs> Only you. Only you. Here at the movie Trivia Shmodon, we do not discriminate bears based on race, <laughs> creed, religion. So I have kind of an interesting story with Inglorious Bastards because I did not see this movie in theaters when it was released. When it came out in 2009, I was at kind of a personal and professional low and I wasn't going to the movies a whole lot. I didn't see much of anything. As a matter of fact, I went back and looked at 2009 just to see what movies I did see in theaters and I only saw six. Avatar, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Star Trek, Terminator Salvation, Friday the 13th, and Watchmen. Not exactly the most stellar rundown of movies to see in the theaters, but you know, I I feel like as movie fans, I I think all of us kind of go through these ebbs and flows. Obviously, as a critic, prior to this year, I saw way more than six movies in theaters every year. But back in 2009, I didn't really have the money or the inclination, really, to head out to the theaters. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until a few years later when I realized that I'd gone through two or three cycles of this not really going to the movies that I thought that I'd kind of lost my love for them and and consciously made an effort to go out and see more. And it worked because I did start reemerging and and finding that magic and that love. But Inglorious and Bastards came out at a time when I really didn't have much of that. I also was a little skeptical on Quentin Tarantino because when you go back to when this movie came out, his previous film was Death Proof. That was his half of the Grindhouse double feature that he did with Robert Rodriguez. And I was not, and quite frankly still am not, the biggest fan of the movie Death Proof, because I felt like it was Quentin Tarantino giving in to every single one of his self indulgences at the expense of the audience. Like, I understood what he was going for with that movie, and the action sequence at the end is fantastic. But he was paying homage so literally and so minutely in such minute detail that I didn't really feel like he had the audience in mind at all when he was making that movie. He was just trying to make this recreation of a very specific subset of 70s movies that he wanted to do. Tarantino's philosophy when making a movie, and this was something that I saw Brad Pitt say in an interview on this Blu-ray disc with the critic Elvis Mitchell, is that the set is church, Tarantino is God, the script is the Bible, and there are no heretics allowed. And I think that can work both ways. I think that can work to his advantage and to his disadvantage. With Inglorious Bastards, I think it very much worked to his advantage. With Death Proof, I think that worked to his disadvantage. Plus, the trailers for this movie were kind of difficult to parse out. And I want my scalps.
1: Nine, 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 nine,
0: nine, nine. Sound good? What is this movie? Is this some kind of a producers' type parody? I really had. No idea what Inglorious Bastards was about. This is the kind of thing that happens sometimes with movies is, even if it's from a director that you like, you might be on the fence for some reason, and it's not until later that you find it and understand just how special this movie is. So usually at this point, I go into kind of a deep dive about the making of the movie and behind-the-scenes facts and stuff, but because this is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time, because it's a more recent movie, and because we're going to be getting into a lot of that with our guest Sam Levine, I really just want to kind of walk through this film and talk about everything that I love about this movie because there is so much to love. And I think one of the reasons that I can revisit it so far, and I've seen it well over a dozen times, is that it feels like a series of five or six short films that then all culminate at the end. That could feel choppy and episodic, but it works for this movie. So let's walk through *Inglorious Bastards* and talk about why I think this is such an incredible film. And it starts with the opening scene, which is really a two-hander between Denis Minochet as Monsieur Lapadite and Hans Landa, played by Christoph Waltz. And for my money, this is one of the great opening scenes of all time. And it sets the stage for just how different this is going to be from any of Tarantino's other films. One thing that I saw Tarantino speak about in interviews was how he wanted to use language as if it was used in real life. So for a lot of movies, if you're in Germany, but it's a movie that's made in America, then everybody speaks English with the kind of movie magic assumption that like you're hearing English, but really the characters are speaking German. Here, he wanted to use the language diegetically, meaning basically you hear what the language is in reality. And so when I was watching this film and the the scene starts in French and then we go for several minutes into the scene, Continuing into French, that to me was an indication that Tarantino is doing something a little different because he writes the dialogue in his head. Obviously, he, he writes it in his own voice, but usually it's spoken many times in his own voice. So to hear actors doing the, his dialogue in a different language, it puts you on your heels a little bit. If you don't know what you're in for, because this is not the Quentin Tarantino that you think, you know, so already you have this different feeling. Uh, And then you have the tension of the scene. Now, you know through exposition and as you get into the dialogue that Christoph Waltz is a guy who's not to be messed with. But there's something that Quentin Tarantino does that I think is very smart, which is that he does not reveal that Monsieur Lapidite is hiding the Dreyfus family under the floorboards until about halfway through the scene. And it changes the entire tone and complexity of everything that's going on. If you'd known it at the beginning, then I think the tension would almost be too unbearable and it would crescendo too early. Uh, If you reveal it too late, it kind of feels like you're cheating uh, the audience out of some tension. By revealing it halfway through within the first half of the scene, you see this very tough German officer coming in and interrogating this French farmer who's obviously trying to hide the fact that he's terrified... And then once that reveal is made, then it becomes—it's the Alfred Hitchcock thing about uh, showing the bomb under the table. Then it just becomes about suspense: is he going to find this family? You have no doubt, really, that he is. What's going to happen? It, it, There—it's two distinct kinds of tension, and they're married so beautifully in this opening scene. And I love how Hans Landa just wears down Monsieur Lapadite with courtesy, but still chips away at little bits of his story and little bits of his armor until he finally asks if he is harboring enemies of the state. And then you see in Christoph Waltz's face, the mask comes off, and you realize who you're dealing with here. You're sheltering enemies of the state, are you not? Yes. The scene ends with the slaughter of the Dreyfus family hiding under the floorboards, with the exception of Shoshana, who's played by Melanie Laurent, who will play a very key role later on in the movie. And something that I always find myself wondering, but kind of came to a conclusion about on this watch of the film, is why does Londa let Shoshana live? <laughs> Au revoir, Shoshana! I think it's because. Hans Landa and Aldo Rein are more similar than either of them would care to admit. We know that the bastards, more often than not, will let a German officer survive from one of their ambushes because they want that officer to go and spread the word. I kind of think that might be what Hans Landa is doing. I think that he lets her live on purpose in order to keep building his own legend. I, on the other hand, love my unofficial title. Precisely because I've earned it. Following that opening scene, which is an incredible 20-25 minutes to start the movie. I could stop the movie right there and it would be one of my favorites from that year. We then move to the introduction of The Bastards uh, and Aldo Rain played by Brad Pitt. And this is, like I said... When you see this performance out of context, you kind of wonder what's going on here because it seems a bit cartoonish. But when you see it in the context of the film itself, it really works. And I've really even warmed up to this performance as we go because it appears at first that Brad Pitt is playing it completely straight. Natty ain't got no humanity. They're the foot soldiers of a Jew-hating, mass-murdering maniac, and they need to be destroyed. Once you know where the movie goes and, and how the story develops, you realize that um, there is a lot of comedy in this character, and, and the broadness of Brad Pitt's performance makes a lot more sense. But you can also see why in the marketing, et cetera, when you see just this scene out of context, you do kind of wonder, like, what the hell is going on with this movie? Is he doing an imitation? Is he doing an homage that I'm not aware of? It works in the context of the movie. And the German will be sickened by us. And the German will talk about us. And the German will fear us. We then move to France, where the bastards have been creating a reign of terror. We're introduced to Hugo Stiglitz, which is a great aside narrated by Samuel L. Jackson. As a German enlisted man, he killed 13 Gestapo officers. And we have the introduction of Donnie Donowitz, the bear Jew, played by Eli Roth. And I have to say, I go back and forth on this character every time I watch the movie. Just the broadness, the broadness of the accent. Um, you know, Eli Roth is kind of operating on a different volume level than almost everybody else in the movie. Teddy f-ing Williams knocks it yeah. out of the park! Benway park on his feet for Teddy f***ing ballgame! He went yacht on that one! Sometimes I watch the movie and it works for me. Sometimes I watch the movie and it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. But one thing that I do love, and I think it really is the first time that I understood what Aldo Raines' character was going to be, is the way that Pitt says, uh, we got a soldier here who wants to die for his country. Oblige him. Got a German here who wants to die for country. Oblige him. It's that swagger. It's that confidence that he brings to the character that works for the entire movie. Then we catch up with Shoshana, who's in hiding in France. She is now going by the name Emmanuel Memieux. She owns a movie theater, of course, because this is a Quentin Tarantino movie. And we're also introduced to Frederick Zoller, who's played by Daniel Brühl. And I've always thought that the Zoller-Shoshana story sticks out a little bit, only because I've never been entirely satisfied with the resolution. What I do love is how Daniel Brühl plays that character, because as an audience, we're not really sure what exactly is going on with Zoller. Uh, from one side, sometimes he appears to be this uh, accidental German hero who has the weight of a nation resting on his shoulders, who might be wrestling with his conscience about what he's done and, and killing all of these men. On the other hand, he may just be a complete psychopath. And I think ultimately what we arrive at is that he's about 80% psychopath and maybe 20% uh, of that guy struggling with his conscience. Uh, but it really is a very nuanced portrayal, and you have to keep a lot of things simmering under the surface as an actor. And that climactic battle between he and Shoshana, I think that it, it is, uh, it's is—it's a great character beat for Zolar because we finally kind of see who he is or who he, who he has been pushed to being. But I've always been a little disappointed that we never get to see Shoshana see the fruits of her revenge. Even if she had perished in the attempt, she dies before any of it happens. And I'd always wished of all the storylines, particularly because Zoller gets kind of lost in the shuffle in the second half of the movie. And so to go back to him at such a crucial moment, you almost feel like you want to keep your attention somewhere else. I wish that they had found a way to resolve the storyline between those two in a way that didn't involve both of them killing the other at that exact moment. The way that they both hide what's really going on underneath what they are putting out into the world. I think they're both really, really great performances, more subtle performances that kind of get buried underneath the acclaim for the bigger lead performances in the film. Every time I watch the movie, there's one scene that may not be the first scene that you think of when you think of Inglorious Bastards, but it's one of my favorites, which is the meeting between Hans Landa and Shoshana in the restaurant as he's trying to figure out if they're going to move the movie premiere with the German High Command to her theater.
1: Ah, Landa, da sind sie Emmanuel,
0: voici le Colonel S.S. Landa. His entrance into the scene takes me by surprise every time. Because they've lulled you into this rhythm, and then all of a sudden things get kicked up to a nine. Uh, Every scene that Christoph Waltz is in in this movie, uh, he's fantastic in, but this is some of my favorite acting that he does, because again, we're asking this question of, does he know or does he not know? And this is something that Shoshana also does not know. Is she about to be taken away and executed or thrown into a camp, or is she going to pass? And she can't tip her hand either way. But watching Christoph Waltz toe that line, as you're wondering if Hans Landa knows or doesn't know, and that moment when he says, I had one more thing to ask, and his face just becomes like granite, like stone. I'm holding my breath every time, the same as Shoshana is holding her breath, because you don't know what he's going to say next. And that moment of relief When he walks away. That is such a great piece of acting from Melanie Laurent. Next up, we get the introduction of Operation Kino, and this is where we get a surprise Mike Myers. I was shocked to find out that Mike Myers is in this movie. You see him in the opening credits, and you're like, no, that's gotta be a different Mike Myers. We have all our rotten eggs in one basket. The objective of Operation Kino? Love the basket. I had seen 300 already, but this was legitimately the first time I remember taking notice of Michael Fassbender because he's so good in this role. And what I like about the character of Archie Hickox and Quentin Tarantino has talked about this too with the bastards, this plan that they have is a terrible plan. It's an atrociously bad plan. And because he's the hero and you want to root for him and because there's so much tension in the scene, I think it's easy to overlook just how bad Archie Hickox is at his job as a double agent in this movie because he really gives the bastards away twice and almost blows the entire operation. First of all, his bad accent work attracts the attention of Maximilian and then attracts the attention of Major Hellstorm, which is what puts them on his radar to begin with. Then they all sort of tap dance out of that mess and his three blunder is really what gives the game away and causes almost all of them to die in that bar. We ordered three glasses.
1: We order three glasses. That's the German three. The other looks odd.
0: I like that Hickox is a bit of a mess up uh, and that he doesn't do everything perfectly and that this does go badly. And I also like that turn that Michael Fassbender does when he realizes that they've been caught. He's got a gun pointed at his balls and he decides to just say, you know what, screw it and switches back to English. Well, if this is it, old boy, I hope you don't mind if I go out speaking to Kings. That scene's also where we're introduced to Diane Kruger, who is, just like everyone else in the movie, great in her role. And when you look at everyone playing a double agent in that scene, she's actually the best at her job. She is unflappable. She takes everything that is thrown at her and comes up with a reason or a way out of it, is able to think on her feet better than any of these soldiers or professionals around her, certainly better than Hickox. And again, because I think that the role comes in later in the film and because she exits before the finale of the film that Diane Kruger doesn't necessarily get a lot of credit for her performance in this movie, but she is wonderful in this part. So we are left with an injured Bridget von Hammersmark who now has to come up with a reason why she has a cast on her leg smuggling Aldo Rain, Donnie Donowitz, and Omar into the movie premiere. And this scene in The Veterinarian, when she's getting her bullet treated, is also one of my favorite line readings from Brad Pitt in the whole movie when he's talking about getting her in shape to walk up the red carpet. Fill you up with more pink touch coming out your ears. Just like your little ass up that rouge carpet. So this is where we transition to the final chapter of the movie. And for me, watching the movie the first time, this is where I'm sure that we're heading toward what's going to unravel this plan. It's probably going to be something with Bridget. Hans Landa knows what's going on. How are they not going to be able to pull this off? Because you think you know how the story ends. You think you know history. And it isn't until the end that Tarantino really pulls the rug out from everybody. And it's revealed exactly what kind of movie he's making here. And I think Tarantino knows that you think you know how the movie's going to end because the whole premiere starts off with Londa hot on the trail of Bridget von Hammersmark. He already knows that she was in the bar and that she's a double agent. And he sniffed out the fact that these three guys with her are obviously not Italian. And Christoph Waltz plays this scene so well. His reaction to von Hammersmark saying that she broke her like mountain climbing is maybe the best laugh acting that I can think of in a movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know that everybody is really screwed when she introduces her Italian friends, and she said that Germans don't have a great ear for Italian, and of course, Landa switches into fluent
1: Italian.
0: And the fact that Landa knows Italian so well makes the bastard's attempts at speaking Italian even funnier. Arrivederci. Arrivederci. So Londa kills Von Hammersmark after uncovering her treachery. And even though Donnie and Omar are in the premiere with dynamite strapped to their legs, I still thought that there was no way this plan was gonna happen. Shoshana and Zoller are both killed. Aldo Rain and Yudovic are kidnapped. And then I, even in my mind at this point, I think it's gonna be about okay, well, we know that Hitler and everybody escape, but I guess it's gonna be about how do the bastards escape, or maybe they find a way to defeat Landa. I still don't think that this movie is going to go the way that it goes until that scene between Yudovich, Aldo, and Hans Landa, where he proposes. Letting the plan go as it was supposed to. And if you get all four, you end the war. And we see Hitler and Goebbels just machine gunned to pieces. And that's where the movie completely turns on its head. And you realize, oh, oh, they're going to do this. And this goes from a historical drama to an absolute fantasy. This is a fairy tale. This is a story of wish fulfillment, and even though not all of the quote unquote good guys make it out of the movie alive, you realize this is a movie where evil is defeated soundly and appropriately and viciously, and good wins objectively. I love this movie even more so because it goes where it goes. And I think it's somewhat risky. I mean, Brad Pitt has said in interviews before that he he one of his hesitations to signing on to this movie was that he didn't really know how people were going to react to this. Because yes, it is great to see Hitler getting machine gunned by a bunch of Jewish American soldiers. That's amazing. But you do run the risk of making it seem like you are trivializing history or in any way minimizing the suffering of so many people. Now, I don't think that that is something that was the reaction of a lot of people, but I can understand if you're Brad Pitt or somebody else who's signing on to this movie that you might take a second to pause and might need more explanation from Tarantino about the tone of this film and what he's actually going for. But I think it works brilliantly for this movie, and it is the literal explosive finale of the film. And then the movie ends with a line that, to quote Hans Landa from this movie, 999.999 times out of a million would be really obnoxious and self-indulgent, but I actually like as the coda to this movie.
1: You know something, you bitch? I think this just might be my masterpiece.
0: And you know what? I think he might be right. So that's a little bit about why I love this movie, but I'm lucky enough to know somebody who was actually in the film, was there when a lot of what we're talking about was shot. He plays Private First Class Gerald Hirschberg in the movie, and I am talking about Sam Levine, a movie trivia schmodown legend and champion. We will talk to him about making this film and its legacy in just one minute. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. You know, in my opinion, I think that cereal is the perfect food. You can have it first thing in the morning as part of a great breakfast. You could have it in the middle of the morning for a snack. You could have it for dinner. You could have it right before bed. It fits into any part of the day. But, you know, when I want a bowl of cereal, I'm not always wanting to get jacked up on a bunch of sugar, especially if it's right before bedtime. What, am I just going to, like, eat all this sugar and then go to bed? No, I'm going to be up till 4 o'clock in the morning. That's where Magic Spoon comes in not only does magic spoon have zero sugar it has 11 grams of protein and three net grams of carbs in each serving and you've got some great flavors to choose from you've got blueberry cocoa frosted and then my favorite which is the fruity flavor i poured myself a bowl of the fruity flavor magic spoon cereal earlier today it was like i was sitting at the breakfast table when i was a kid it was like the cereal that i ate growing up except that magic spoon is keto friendly gluten-free, grain-free, GMO-free, soy-free, and low-carb. So if you want to try this out, go to magicspoon.com slash movies. You can get the variety pack, try out all these flavors for yourself, and don't forget to use our special promo code MOVIES to get free shipping on your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident that they are going to send you some great cereal, they have a 100% happiness guarantee. That means if you're not happy with their product for any reason, you will get your money back, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash movies, and use the code MOVIES to get free shipping on your order, and I'd like to thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the podcast. I am so happy to talk to my guest. He is in this movie, in Inglorious Bastards. He's also, you know him from the showdown, you know him as a champion. I know him as my friend as well. Very happy to have him on the show, Mr. Sam Levine. Oh Dan what a pleasure it
1: is to be here with you. You you're a champion to me as well. Not not just to me to so many more than me. Um awesome. so yes so it's a, it's a, a genuine treat for me to be here. And uh, yeah uh, champions aside uh, I also think of you as a friend before I think of you as a movie trivia
0: champion. So, Sam, this is uh, th- th- what I love about the show is everybody comes at it from a different perspective. So we've mm-hmm. had with Ken Knapsack, we've talked about Star Wars and Mark Draco with Friday the 13th and Mark mm-hmm. Riley with Jaws, uh, Jaws the Revenge. You know, we come at it as, from kind of a fan angle, either a mutual yeah. fandom that I share with that person or sometimes they know a lot more about the movie than I do. With *Inglorious Bastards*, we're in a different air. It's one that I talked to Alex Winter about with Bill and Ted and D. Wallace mm-hmm. with *ET*, which is that you were in the movie, so your experience with it is completely different than anybody else's who, like me, just watched it. Um, sure. So, I, you know, I, I guess really starting off, this is you know probably what 2008, 2009 when you get the, we- the offer to come and do this movie. Yep, we shot it in uh, li- uh, like fall two thousand
1: eight into the beginning of two thousand
0: nine. You've done freaks and geeks at this point. You're you're mm-hmm. doing movies. You're doing TV shows. But I imagine when you get the, I guess at that time probably the phone call or whatever from Quentin Tarantino saying like, "Hey, do you want to be in my new movie?" That's got to be a bit. That's got to be a bit different. It, it was definitely different. Um, no, the way I got it, I, I got
1: the part was was a, a fun story because. Um, So uh, at the time in July, August, probably July of 2008, um, it was known that Quentin Tarantino was setting up general meetings with actors who fit a certain type. He was looking specifically for, like, comedic Jewish actors between, you know, 25 and 30 to fill out the roles of these bastards, And uh, and so every actor who met that description was sort of on notice. And I heard about that from a friend who matched the description. And so I called my uh, my people and I was like, hey, uh, you know about this, right? Because we have to make sure I get seen on this. We have to. Like I have met Quentin. I know Quentin. Quentin knows who I am. At the very least, we got to get this meeting. And uh, and so we did. We, We were able to get the meeting. And uh, and so I went and met with Quentin on a Friday. Uh, uh, It was me and Quentin and just the casting director. And we didn't read anything like Quentin wasn't interested in auditioning his actors on the first meeting. He just wanted to. And I hope I'm allowed to curse. Shoot the shit.
0: (laughs) Yes. And I've heard about this with other movies is that whether it's the first meeting or the third meeting, that there's a certain point where Tarantino is like, I don't want to hear you read my lines. I want to talk to you about movies and just get a feel for you.
1: Yes. And that was a hundred percent what the first meeting was about was just hanging out, seeing if the vibe is there, you know, making sure like we can have a conversation that's not about just the movie because he's not terribly interested in just having actors who are just there to act and don't care about anything else, at least as far as I could tell, um, you know, on his sets. And, uh, and so that was the first meeting. We just chatted for like 30 minutes about, this, that, the other thing. Like I said, we had met before. We met several years earlier uh, backstage at Jimmy Kimmel Live. And, uh, and I knew he was a big Freaks and Geeks fan. So we just sort of talked about that and Judd and, you know, other Hollywood nonsense. And then uh, at the end of the 30 minutes, he was like, okay, that was great, man. Uh, have you read the script? And at the time, I had read the illegally leaked online script, but I didn't want to admit to that. So I was like, uh, no, uh, I don't know. And also, I wasn't 100% sure that was the real script. So I said, no. And he goes, oh, OK, well, here you go. Here's the script. Uh, so, you know, read it over. Why don't you look at, uh, I don't know, Hirschberg, Donowitz, and uh, Udovich, and then uh, come back on, uh, you know, next week, and, and we'll read some scenes. And I was like, yeah, sure. So uh, I look at those Roles, You know, I'm reading the script all weekend and I'm looking at those and I basically memorize all of those parts. Cause I don't know what he's going to ask me to read. Right. Um, actually, I actually take it back. He didn't ask me to memorize Donowitz. He was like, look at Hirschberg and Udovitz. uh So I read those. Um, and so uh, uh, anyway, I go back in on Monday of the next week and we do all the Hirschberg scenes and all the Udovich scenes and then when you read for Quentin, you don't
0: read for him. You read with him. Right. So like all you of talent, his writing, he writes in his in his voice like he writes yes. the voice that he hears in his head is his own. And he just types this out. Exactly. But
1: like he wants to be in there with his actors when they're doing the... Re- so, like, my audition was with Quentin. Like, normally casting directors have, like, another actor or a casting assistant come in and do the off-camera lines that aren't yours. Like, Quentin does all of them. And he's off-book, so you damn well better be, too. So, like, <laughs> it's just me and Quentin just, like, doing these scenes together. And, and, like, in the middle of them, sometimes he's like, no, no, give it to me, give it to me! And, you know, like, he's directing you while he's acting with you. Like, it's a real exercise. (laughs) And so we did this with all the Hirschberg scenes and then all the Yudovich scenes. And then he asked me at the end of it, he's like, did you, did you look at Donowitz by the way? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I read the whole thing. He goes, cool. Let's try some of those. (laughs) And so then we do some of these Donowitz scenes and it was crazy, man. We spent over a half hour just doing scene after scene. And I didn't know what to make of it. And then he was like, all right, well, this was super cool. Thanks so much for coming in. And then I leave. And now I'm on pins and needles Waiting to hear one way or the other, and like we're just getting nothing from the casting office. Like every time my people call over, they're like, "Yeah, we don't know. Quentin's still casting. We'll see. You know, gotta wait it out." And I'm going stir crazy, so I fly to Chicago so I can go see some Cubs games just to get my mind off of it because that's that's my that's my uh, my synagogue. That's my yeah. temple is Wrigley Field. So <laughs> Wrigley I like Field. I just needed to go there just to take my mind off of it. And so while I'm there in Chicago is when I get the phone call from my people. OK, man, he wants you to be
0: Hirschberg. Uh, it's it shoots in Berlin. You got to go there in like two weeks. You're ready. When we were doing the Star Wars episode, uh, they were talking about how uh, I found a clip that didn't make the final show, but how uh, George, uh, sorry, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill were saying they were cast as an ensemble. So it was the three of them or another mm. three with a t- with a group like the bastards and did you do you know that maybe one of the reasons that it took so long were they trying to find like we've got to cast the right group it's not casting the right one person in each role like we need to get the group right and the group dynamic right
1: i think um it that that was part of it another part of it was um he quentin had certain actors in mind for certain roles i think the giant thing was uh, Brad Pitt's availability was essentially what dictated the scheduling of that movie. Um, so everyone who was available
0: during the time Brad was available,
1: who Quentin liked, got to be in that movie.
0: When you when you're looking more into the production of of movies, and I didn't even really know this until really until I was on different sets. Certainly not a Tarantino film set, but you know other sets. Um, mm-hmm. When when you talk about a large ensemble cast. There's kind of two ways of going about it, which is that you have these big group scenes. Like, let's say the, you know, the, the scene where we first meet uh, Donowitz and he comes out with the baseball bat. And every, you're mm-hmm. all up on the hill kind of surrounding everything. Some directors and some actors are just like, okay, if you're in this shot, we're going to shoot your shot. And then uh, everything you're not in uh, go sit, sit in the trailer. Uh, and then there's people that are just like, no, this is, we're playing a scene here. So if you're in the scene, you're in the scene. It doesn't matter if the camera's pointed at you or not. Yeah. Especially in these big group scenes when you're all together. Uh,
1: With Quentin, it's very much the former. With Quentin, it's all hands on deck at all times. I don't care if this is a tight close-up of you, if this is a big wide shot, you're barely in it, or if you're off camera. Quentin is very much about everyone's there, everyone's doing their part, and I expect 100% from everyone, whether you are on camera or not. Uh, He he runs a a real tight ship in that regard. And, you know, he sort of explained that to us on day one. Day one, we had this giant table read with all the cast. I mean, everyone. Uh, And and Quentin started that table read by telling us, I expect 100% from each of you between action and cut. That is the one thing I ask of you The one thing I expect from you And if you are not Going to give that to me If I feel like you ever give me anything less than that I will tell you to get the fuck Off my set Because that's how I do things here And I don't I'm not saying that to threaten you I'm just telling you if you're used to not doing that You better change your ways um, And so he sort of Put the fear of God in all of us Right then and there I was about and, to say is that uh, inspirational yeah. or is that terrifying? It's both. <laughs> it's it's definitely both. It's terrifying to know like, "Oh my god. Okay, fine." But I mean, the problem is and this is more a an inside baseball thing, but like actors who have been doing this a long time sometimes have a tendency To phone it in when it's the wide shot or they're doing off camera for another actor and they only have one line. So what's the big deal if they only give 50 percent? Like that's a tendency that that actors will have after a certain amount of time they've been doing it or or if they're really new to it, you know, and maybe that they they were brought up like, oh, it's not important. Don't don't worry about it. It's fine. You've only been doing this a year and watch the other actors do it. And you don't have to give 100 percent. And, you know, for some directors, that's fine. They don't care. Uh, Quentin cares a lot. So to him, it's all about 100 percent. All the time, no matter what the shot is, if it's a big wide shot, if you're distant off camera and you have one line that's probably never going to get heard in that shot. But if, if you don't give him everything you got, you're on notice. So
0: when you when you read the script, you're making the movie. Now, everybody, the secret's kind of out in the sense of like mm-hmm. they know that it is this revenge fantasy and that uh, and, and he took Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a similar direction. The idea of sort of uh, writing historical wrongs—the good guys mm-hmm. win, the bad guys lose, etc When you're when you're reading the script and you get to page probably like 160, uh, it, <laughs> it was, was a long, long script. Of, yeah, exactly. Uh huh. And you get to the part where it says, you know, Donowitz machine guns Hitler in the face or whatever it says. I'm sure it's right. much more flowery than that because uh, it's mm-hmm. Tarantino. Is there a part of you that says, like, hmm, this? could go this will probably be great but this might not go well uh well funny you should
1: ask about that specific moment um i'll tell you this when i was reading the script and i got to that page where hitler meets his demise uh i had to i'm flipping back forth going "I i must be reading this wrong what 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 is going on um but in the original screenplay which, by the way, is available in book form or, you know, you can still probably find it online. But, you know, by the book, Um, that was not originally how that scene was supposed to end. Uh, Originally, um, I mean, and it does sort of start this way in the book. uh, uh, Donowitz and in the original script, Hirschberg are the ones with bombs strapped to their legs because they are there to blow up the theater. Um, And then this is very much a thing that Quentin does. The script is an ever evolving thing. For the most part, he shoots in sequence because if he feels like while he's shooting, he has a different idea for how things he wants them to play out based on how maybe unanticipated things happened while he was shooting earlier scenes, he likes to be able to change. And there was stuff that happened, you know, I'm not really privy to where he saw the bastard stuff playing out differently. He wanted a more physicality of what happens in the theater. There was a certain point when he realized he didn't want it just to be explosions. He was like, nah, this isn't
0: brutal enough for Hitler. I need this guy to suffer." You're you're in the movie, and and for a certain mm-hmm. part of the production, you're kind of anticipating like, "Oh, I'm going to be in this in this." Ending, you know, this ending Mm -hmm. part here, this thing. And then is it is it early on? Is it rehearsals? Is it while you're shooting that they kind of come to you or Quentin or whoever comes to you and says like, hey, listen, actually, you know, we're going to go we're going to do this instead of this. I mean, it was it was that come? it
1: was while we were shooting. Um, We were we were deep into the shoot and um, it didn't come as a huge surprise only because he had changed so much. Uh, of the script As we continued shooting And and I mean that was even explained to uh, Me on the phone By one of the producers Before I even got to Berlin Like you need to know up front There is always a chance You'll shoot for one week And then Quentin decides Oh no I want to give your character A heroic death right there And you'll die And even though the script From the rest of the point says something else Like sorry you're dead um, and, you know, certain characters kind of stuff like that happened to and certain characters were completely cut out of the movie in rehearsal. Uh, there was another member of the Bastards who never made it out of rehearsal. Uh, so everyone was sort of on notice, like this is Quentin's ball game. Don't get attached to anything. And and I never was. So I was never emotionally expecting anything beyond the day I just shot. Uh, so when he approached me and said, Hey man, I love you. I love everything you're doing, but, uh, I'm changing up the last 20 pages. I was fine. I was like, all right, man, you do what you want to do. Like my job as an actor here is to help you make the movie in your head. Am I bummed out? Sure. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go crazy about it. Like I want Quentin to make the movie he wants to make. And also I'd already shot quite a bit of stuff. At the time, I felt like most of that stuff was hopefully going to wind up in the movie still, and it yeah. didn't. So that was a bummer. But um, at the time when, you know, he he was at least nice enough to tell me himself, like, hey, man, I'm changing up the ending. And originally, when he told me the, the changing of the ending, it wasn't even uh, D- Donowitz and, and uh, 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 Omar. It was like a whole other thing. And so then there was probably another two or three more rewrites before it found out, finally wound up being what it was. But, um, you know, it was a bummer. But like I said, it wasn't, it wasn't, oh, my God, how could you do this? It's crazy. I was fully expecting that every day I got the set, that he was going to pull me aside and go, listen, I'm killing your character
0: today. This was the final collaboration, sadly. Between Tarantino and one of his key collaborators, who was Sally Menke, who was his editor, um, who did yeah. one film after uh, *Inglorious Bastards*, but the, this was her last Tarantino film. Obviously, particularly with the movie as sprawling as this one, the edit is a very important step in the process. Was she because I've seen, you know, I've had I see the special features and stuff and I see all the actors doing the high Sally's to the, you know, after takes and stuff. Was she ever a presence on set or was it more like Tarantino's like, okay, I got this stuff and then I'm going to go work with her after I'm done here.
1: Um, In this particular instance, Sally was a presence, though not physically on set uh, because Sally was editing while we were shooting, which is one of the main reasons that Quentin shoots in sequence. Mm. Uh, is so that he can see an edit, a a rough edit that Sally is putting together for him to better assist him in deciding what, if any, changes he wants to make as the story continues to unfold on the screen. Um, So Sally was there in Berlin with us, and we were a pretty friendly group, uh, uh, everyone. And so we had uh, weekly get-togethers. We shot... Uh, Mostly six day weeks And on that sixth day we'd work You know 18-20 hours And then it would be You know one in the morning And then Quentin and everyone would go all right, so we're all hanging out tonight after work Uh, It's 1am now So uh, everybody meet in the lobby Of this place at 2am and here's the club We're going to Yeah, And it got crazy man You know we we worked hard and we partied hard And then we party all night And Sally, God bless her, came out and partied with us. (laughs) Uh, And then the next day we, you know, was our actual day off. And it'd be like, all right, so we're doing a big group dinner tonight at Sally's apartment. because She had this big, beautiful apartment there. And we do a group catered dinner at five o'clock that day because, you know, we'd all hopefully recovered from the night before. We'd have a big group dinner so we could all hang out together and then go to bed early because we were going to be on set the next day at 6 a.m. So uh it it was a very uh, her presence was very large uh, in, in that group while we were shooting. And um and, and we all loved Sally. Sally was uh, amazing. There there was no question to how talented she was and how you know she was I always thought of her as, you know, Quentin's best rewriter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I miss her terribly and I got to know her pretty well. And, and, and yeah, man, that was a real big loss, not just uh, for the friend that she was, but to the filmmaking community she was, she was really second to none. And, and, you know, Quentin has obviously continued to make movies and has found great, wonderful other people to collaborate with. But I think for me, that's one of the biggest losses, you know, of Tarantino movies is the loss of the great Sally Minkie.
0: So you wrap up shooting. A process of post production uh, occurs, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. the film uh, makes its premiere at the at the Cannes Film Festival, where you know yep. Pulp Fiction. I mean, Tarantino is Mister Cannes. I mean, the Pulp Fiction won the Palme yeah. d'Or. He's been the 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 president of the jury. I imagine that like when when Tarantino brings a film to Cannes, it's kind of like he. He runs the town a little bit, I would imagine.
1: I knew the movie would be there and I covered my bases to make sure that I was there. And I, you know, got my tickets to see the movie at the Grand Palais, go up that giant red carpet to this thing. That's the most amount of people I've ever seen. Like the amount of people who were there is just like looky-loos. Just watching. Just Just, watching. people, Just watching. Like I got to the top of that staircase and I'm looking out and I was like, oh my God, this is what it feels like to be a Beatle. (laughs) <laughs> like, th- there, there were people, it was a sea of humanity. Honest to God, it was surreal. Um, and like when Quentin and Brad showed up on that red carpet, holy shit, dude, like people were going nuts. Like they were bursting into flame. It was like watching when like those teenage girls would cry when they saw Elvis. Like it was like that
0: level of fame. And and it was it was amazing to see that in person. So a question that I always ask on the show is, do you remember the first time you saw the movie? I'm guessing that you do, considering that it was... uh, I'm assuming the first time you saw the entire movie was in France at Cannes.
1: That is correct. Yes, the first time I saw it was in Cannes uh, in France because Quentin is notoriously protective Mm -hmm. of his movies before they've been released. Um, And so no one was allowed to see that cut. I think maybe just... Quentin, uh, Sally, of course, you know, the producers, and maybe Brad. That's probably it, uh, who, who had actually seen the version of the movie before that moment in, in Cannes. And, yeah, the first time I saw it was such a whirlwind of emotion for me because it was, needless to say, the biggest spectacle of a film I had ever been a part of. So watching this movie that I had read on the page, you know, not even a year earlier, watching it come to life, getting to see the new Tarantino movie at Cannes in the south of France, you know, in this theater, in this moment was amazing. But then also knowing the script as well as I did, knowing all the scenes that I and the bastards had shot and sort of watching, you know, the movie play out and going, oh, I I guess that seems not in it, and oh, I guess that that seems not in it, and oh, wow, okay, all right. So he's focusing more on the Shoshana storyline than the Bastard storyline, and oh, all right, you know, and it's sort of this realization of a lot of the stuff we shot, a lot of the stuff I shot, not in there, um, but then also like, oh my God, this movie is amazing. Like it was just such a confluence of different emotions, and you know, I walked away from it you know, kind of in a daze, like I'm going to need to see it again. And I did, they, they screened it again. And I went to the next screening and, 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 and I just wanted to see the movie again and take it all in. And um, yeah, it was one of those things where, yeah, on a personal level, of course I wish more of what the bastard shot more of what I shot was in the movie, but on a fan level, on a movie lover level, I can't be angry at that movie because it's a fricking work of art It's like it's a masterpiece.
0: Do you because it was so, you know, it's literally divided up into chapters. And as you said, like the stuff with the the theater was shot, you know, separately at this point, Mm -hmm. that that first time you're seeing that, is that the first time you're seeing Christoph Waltz uh, and what he's doing in the movie? Is it the first time you're seeing Melanie Laurent and what she's doing in the movie? Or had you gotten little glimpses uh, throughout?
1: So um, at that table read, right where Quentin told all of us, I expect 100% from each and every one of you. Obviously, at that point, you'd be a fool during that table read not to give 100% yeah. because he started the table read by saying, action. So, you know, everybody there is giving 100%, except Kristoff, who gave this really quiet, creepy kind of understated read. And I was like, oh, all right. Okay, cool. Because that was the first time any of us were seeing him. Uh, We later came to learn that privately before the table read, Quentin told Christoph, I'm going to tell everybody I want hundred percent of them, but that does not apply to you. I want you to give me 5% because I don't want any of these actors to know what they are up against Mm -hmm. until they are in a scene with you with the cameras rolling. And so that was sort of his secret, uh, his and Christoph's secret at the table read. So um, for me, uh, obviously, I don't have any scenes with Christoph in the movie, but there was a day a wonderful, fateful, glorious day that I was not working, but they needed me to come to set for a wardrobe thing. I get in a van, they drive me 90 minutes out to set. I go and I do my thing with wardrobe. And then they didn't have a van to take me back to town uh, for like another hour or so. So I said, all right, I'll just go hang on set, you know, see what they're shooting today. And Quinn's pretty protective of his sets. Visitors aren't really allowed. um, You know, a lot of unnecessary personnel aren't allowed, but I had a little bit of leeway because, you know, I'm one of the cast. Yeah. So I got to go hang out on set. And it just so happened to be one of the days that they were shooting that first opening scene between Christoph and Denis Minoche, you know, Pierre Lapidite on the farm. Like they did have exteriors. They did shoot at, at an actual little farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. But for the interiors most of that was shot on a stage. Quentin does not have a video village, which for those who don't know is monitors of of what the camera is seeing. And usually at those monitors, that's where the director would be watching and the script supervisor would be watching. And, you know, maybe department heads would be watching to make sure everything looks okay. He does not have video village. The only way to see what's going on is to actually be they're on set near the cameras if you want to get close. So he's, you know, he, he's a stickler for that sort of thing. So he watches next to the camera while they're shooting. And uh, the one thing you can do, though, is get headphones from the sound department so you can actually hear what's being shot. And if you're lucky enough to position yourself, you know, far enough away, you can see from a distance what's being shot. But here, like you're up close and personal with it. And so I'm sitting there probably about 20-ish feet away at a pretty good angle to see what they're shooting with Denis O'Shea and Kristoff. And I'm listening on headphones. And so I'm sitting there watching this, you know, in the dark with a producer of the film Lawrence Bender. And I'm getting to watch for the first time what Kristoff is actually doing in this movie. And... They shoot as much of that scene as possible in one go because, you know, Quentin's crazy for long shots. He wants that moment to live as long as it can live. So I got to watch them shoot for like 10 minutes of just this long extended scene. And I am losing it at how amazing this guy is, at how amazing this scene is. And they do it a couple times. And finally, after like the third time, he yells cut and everybody's celebrating. I turn to Lawrence Bender and I say, honest to God, if that doesn't win you an Oscar, I don't know what you have to do to get
0: one. See for me, it's crazy. Like I'm just like sitting here because that that is no joke. That is in my top five scenes of all time, of all time. Like that. If you would, if Quentin Tarantino would have won an Oscar if he had just like taken that scene out and submitted it for best short film. Every time I watch it, it's the same way. I'm just glued. I am transfixed. It is. If you were ever gonna ask me to name a favorite piece of acting in a movie, in any movie. Yeah, I don't really know if I could beat Christoph Waltz in that scene. And so yeah. it just blows my yeah. mind. It's like if you said like, oh, I was on the boat when they did the scene where uh, Roy Scheider says you're going you're gonna to need to bigger <laughs> boat. Like that's just my, my mind is blown by that. It,
1: that was just uh, absolutely a stroke of good luck that I happened to be there that day on set and happened to have time to
0: kill. Moving, you know, past the immediate experience of it, now when you look back at it, it's like, to to be a part of this movie, like, I'm sure career-wise, it's that's great, because it's on your resume. Mm-hmm. I was in Inglorious Bastards. But it, personally, because, you know, through the sh- everyone knows you through the schmodown, and, and the fact that mm-hmm. you know a lot about movies, but you, we've hung out a lot. I know mm-hmm. how much you love movies, and the idea, yeah. like... On a personal level, to know that you are a part of this movie, and it's a movie that I consider to be a great movie, one of my favorite movies, knowing that you are a part of this movie and how it fits into the patchwork of film history, yeah. you know, what is that what does that feel like? I mean, I
1: I you know, I try not to I try not to think of it that way because Um, It's tough for me sometimes. uh, I have always thought of myself, in in spite of the business that I'm in as a fan first, like one of the reasons I do what I do is because I love movies so much, because I grew up with such a a love of cinema and television and, and acting and storytelling. And I always try to remind myself, don't forget what caused this. It's because this is something you love. That's why I pursued it. Um, because it means so very much to me and so it, it it can be hard with a movie like this which even had I not been in, in it still undoubtedly would have been one of my favorite movies of all time mm-hmm. uh, so it's a weird thing it's a weird surreal thing to be like oh there's this great movie called Inglorious Bastards I love it so much and when I watch it I can see myself in it because I'm literally in it uh you know, like it's weird. It's a weird thing to to think about sometimes. But the 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 positive thing, I guess, is it wasn't my first movie. It wasn't so, it wasn't a movie that I got early in my career. I'd already been acting professionally for over ten years uh, uh, by the time I got Bastards, and uh, and that helped because I'd already you know, seen myself in in movies, seen myself on television. And so the element of being able to appreciate a movie while also understanding that I'm in it, I, I was familiar with. I knew how to, you know, sort of separate the two. So it, it never stops being a little weird, but with each movie it gets a little less weird. And this one in particular, um, you know, it's probably the least weird only because I've seen it the most amount of times. Yeah. Uh, I would say I've probably seen this one just slightly more than I saw Not Another Teen Movie because that was the first time I was on camera in a movie. And I would saw it so many times when it was in theaters and then on television. And, but I still love this movie. It's an amazing movie. And, you know, at this point, it's now 11 years that the movie's been out. So I've long since come to terms with, ah, well, I know the scene we shot that should have gone there and it's not in the movie and oh well. Um, So now it's like I see the movie and I just love it for what it is. Like it's just a masterful film. It is definitely something I will carry with me the rest of my life that I am lucky enough to have been a part of it.
0: Well, thank you for indulging me uh, with the stories of being in the movie, and watching the movie. Um, it's always great talking to you. It's funny. It's, I think this is the first time we've ever actually talked about Inglorious Bastards in our ears of knowing each is. other. So, it um, is. It is, because I mean, camera.
1: yeah, yeah, dude. Like have, Those stories in that way, in that depth, aren't really going to come up in, in conversation when you and I are hanging out, because yeah. that's, that's not what we do to each other. But wait, <laughs> I have one story that I do want to share with you, because you and your... Uh, movie-loving audience are are going to enjoy it. Okay. Um, so, uh, because uh, I was afraid I was going to come on and tell mostly stories that I'd already told in other podcasts or whatever, but I'm actually really thrilled. I told a bunch of uh, stories and things that I haven't really told in a lot of other places. So I'm very glad that we got to cover that. But this one is a story that... I know you'll appreciate. So during that two week rehearsal period, it wasn't just that we were rehearsing and making sure that we were comfortable with our roles and with the other actors and stuff. One of the things that Quentin wanted was all of the bastards to be very familiar with all of the weapons that might be used over the course of our shooting. So we had weapons training for like several days in a row. And that meant the first day The uh, weapons team laid out all of these authentic old time weapons on this big table on a soundstage. Obviously, they're all empty. But we had to learn how to handle each one, how to load each one, how to dismantle each one. Like he was a perfectionist about this. And I loved it. We all loved it. So we're standing there this one day. All of the bastards are kind of hovering around this big table with 100 different guns on it. And we're picking up each one. We're learning a a little about each one. And we're standing there holding them. They're showing us this is how you hold this one. This is how you hold this one. And at one point, one of the weapons guys says to the other, oh, did we bring in those things? Oh, I don't know. They're still in the truck. Go get them." So the guy brings out this box, this, you know, cardboard 12 by 12 box of a bunch of stuff. And it's closed up and we're all curious, you know, what's in it. And he sets it down and he goes to get something else. And I'm standing there holding this Luger and, you know. The other bastards and Brad that were all standing there holding these guns and holding a, a, a gun, a handgun, next to me. Brad looks over and he turns to me and goes, "Oh, it's in the box." And I stop and I go, "You did not <laughs> just say that to me while holding a gun." And he looks at me and he goes, "What?" And I went, "Ask it again." And he stops and he goes. And it is one of the greatest moments of my movie fan life.
0: Oh my God.
1: That I got to have that little beat with him.
0: So forever.
1: What's in the box no longer means what it means from the movie seven. Yeah. It now will forever mean that perfect moment <laughs> I had with Brad while we were learning how to use these guns. Uh, that is amazing.
0: I love it. What's in the box? I love it. It's What's it's, in the box? Because in context, if you're Brad Pitt, you, you just ask yeah. what's in the box. Everybody else yeah, that matches
1: meaning to that. Of course, yeah, that doesn't mean anything to him. But to everyone else, especially me and
0: you, eh, it means something very different. Uh, I love it. Well, Sam, thank you for sharing your experiences with the movie and seeing the movie and being in the movie. Um, Is there anywhere else that people can check you out in besides one of the best movies uh, of my (laughs) my lifetime? Uh, Yes, thank you for asking.
1: Uh, You can find me right now in two places. Uh, The first one is a movie on VOD that came out recently called Immortal. Uh, And that is an anthology film for different short stories, all about, you guessed it, immortality. Uh, Amazing people are in it. Uh, Dylan Baker, Tony Todd, uh, uh, other people whose names I'm forgetting because I'm terrible. Uh, But it's called Immortal. And it's anywhere you get VOD, that's where you can find it. It's worth checking out if you like the genre. Uh, And then the second place you can find me is Cameo. That's right. I'm on Cameo. I'm here for all your uh, birthday wishing and any other wishing needs. I'll tell you what's a very popular request that I'm happy to do. I will apologize for you. Do you need to to apologize to someone for something you did wrong? Let me do it for you. I'm very good at apologizing. I have a long track record of making terrible mistakes, so let me bring my apologizing skills to your life. I will apologize to people for you, or I will break bad news for you. That's right. Don't know how to tell someone that you'd rather be single? Let me do it for you. I will end your relationship for a very reasonable price. Cameo. Thank you.
0: I mean, an offer like that, who could pass it up? Uh, Sam, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure, Dan. Anytime. It's always great talking to Sam, and and that is true. We have never actually talked about *Inglorious Bastards* before we did just now for the show. So I want to thank Sam for letting me exploit our friendship uh, in order to talk about this movie. And I've got to be honest, my mind was blown. I don't know if you could tell in that interview when he was talking about the fact that he got to see some of that opening scene shot. Because for me, that is one degree of separation from one of my favorite movie moments of all time. So... Uh, Thank you so much, Sam, uh, for devoting the time to talk to me about the movie. Uh, Before we go, as always, I want to talk a little bit about the copy of the movie that sits on my shelf, because that's very much what this show is about. It's about all my movies. Uh, And like I said, this is the Blu-ray copy of the film that I bought shortly after I saw it for the first time. There's no commentary track, and I don't really know if Tarantino's done a lot of commentary tracks from his movies. Uh, But you get a few extended scenes, um, not too many deleted scenes, but some longer versions of scenes that are in the movie you also get as i mentioned about a 30 minute conversation between tarantino brad pitt and elvis mitchell which is great kind of behind-the-scenes peek at the making of the film. You get some poster galleries and uh, trailers. You get uh, an interview with Rod Taylor, who played Winston Churchill in the film. He's been in so many other movies, including The Birds. This was his final film performance almost 20 years, I think, after his previous film performance, so it's great to hear him talking about working with Tarantino. He mentions the fact that there is no video village or video monitor, that he is right up there with the camera. That's an example of an old-school actor who was really, really attracted to the way that Tarantino made films. There's also a really bittersweet thing on there um, of actors looking into the camera and saying, Hi, Sally. It's Sally Minky, who is the editor of this film, who tragically passed away shortly after Inglourious Bastards came out uh, the actors would if they blew a take or after the take was over just look into the camera wave and say hello to her because they knew as an editor that she would be sitting there watching the footage so um it's 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 a fun feature that then um takes on a, a little bit of a, a sadder tone uh, knowing what was to come but it is a great look again at the fun that they had making the movie You also get the full film, Nation's Pride, the movie within the movie that you see bits and pieces of during the film. You get the making of it. Uh, Eli Roth directed that part of the movie. So there's some pretty good behind-the-scenes stuff about Inglorious Bastards to be found on this Blu-ray release. I'm sure there have been others since, but I like the fact that this is the original one because this is the copy of the movie from the time that I fell in love with it. And that wraps up today's episode about Inglorious Bastards. Thank you so much for watching and listening. If you are watching on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, you can listen to this podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you can download podcasts. And if you're listening and you want to see the video portion of the show, you can watch us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. Thank you so much for watching all my movies. We'll be back with another selection and a special guest next week. But for now, it's time to go back on the show. has the winter season taken a toll on your tile upholstery carpet call cyclone cleaners 570-726-6200 For all your carpet upholstery and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today. 570-726-6200